Hello, I'm Matt Carpenter, and this is the Good Life Podcast. Hello, welcome to the Good Life Podcast. I'm Matt Carpenter, and I'm thankful today to have as our guest, Mr. John Waters. John is a writer. He, he has written for uh, various newspapers in Ireland. He lives in Ireland. And the way that I was first introduced to him is through his book, which I have here. He's written several, but Give Us Back the Bad Roads. So, John, thank you for being with us today. Pleasure, Matt. Nice to talk to you. So in your book, for us, especially here in the States, that title strikes us as odd. Someone would actually ask for bad roads. And of course, we'll get into the details of this, but just to start with, why would you want to actually have a return to the bad roads in Ireland? Um, it's a reference really to, to the span of my life and the changing face of, of the landscape of Ireland at that time, in part. There are many facets of the, the title, meanings to the title, but in this narrower context, there's this kind of idea that uh, when we had a simple country, when we had a, a, a country that had you know, basic facilities, basic services, basic you know, provisions for our needs as human beings, that we had autonomy, we had freedom, uh, we had self-sufficiency, and uh, that we lost this. We gave this up in a kind of a Faustian pact to become modern. And that the the most visible sign of that modernity, so-called, in quotation marks, is the motorways which now crisscross our country and which really changed the nature of travel. I mean, as Milan Gundera said uh, one time in in, in, uh, one of his books, he said there's a difference between roads and routes, you know, that a route takes you between two places. A road is a journey, is a place place in itself that moves through space. And so you are in the place where you are at every second, at at every moment, whereas on a route you are not. You are on your way from A to B or A to Z. And and so that's I, I so it's a kind of a plea to go back, not go back to the past, but to go back to a moment when we were free, when we had our country, it was our country, and we could choose what to do with it, as opposed to having it occupied by vague ominous forces, which is the current situation, I'm afraid. And uh, that book was written in 2018, and you know it preceded the present phase, uh, which began 40 months ago, 40, 40 months ago, uh, with the announcement of the pandemic. And, and of course, everything that, that I talk about in the book has been accelerated and, and amplified thousands of times in, 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 in that period. So now the book, really in a quite shocking way for me, uh, never mind for anybody who might read it, is, is prophetic. Of, yes. Of, of where we are and what what, what what this is all. So I didn't even know, Matt, that it was in, in a certain sense when I wrote it about something. Mm. That it was about some change in the world other than reacting to certain events, describing certain events, 
And then suddenly, it's, you know, a couple of years later, it starts to kind of erupt in front of me that this is actually all connected and that it has been connected for a very long time and that the roots of it go way, way back. Not just in Ireland, in Irish history, but in the history of the world. And that this is something, you know, quite shocking and quite uh, ominous, obviously very ominous. And something, you know, which I think is very difficult to explain, even to oneself. One can feel it. One feels the horror of it. But finding the words is very difficult. And, and really, you know, I think adequate, we cannot, I think, function with mere sociological uh, descriptions or, or, or political descriptions or economic descriptions or any of those kind of normal codes that are used to describe societies. We have to really think at least or at least feel in the, in the realm of the esoteric, in the realm of the supernatural. And, and that's, I think, you know, again, the title is about all that. It's about really also, you know, the fact that my father was a mill car driver, which is really, I suppose, the Irish equivalent of a stagecoach, you know, without the horses. Uh, and and um, he, he drove right around the country, like in a very rickety old jalopy of a van over for many years. And I went with him and, you know, to see the countryside in that state, like was such a beautiful thing. And it, it is so, so strange and so sad now to see that it is no longer disrespected for that, for that existence, for that, you know, that essence mm. that, that I experienced as a child. One of the things that I appreciate about the book, in addition to the fact that you just, it's, so I, when I picked it up the first time, I picked it up along with another book also about Ireland. So I was going to immerse myself fully and I was struck. So, so at, within just a few chapters, I read the first few chapters of your book and the first few chapters of the other book. I ended up putting the other book down because I said, I, I can't, I'm enjoying John Waters writing so much more than I am the writing of this historian over here. And I just, so it, it was, it was a delight. You, you, you have a wonderful writing style. It is engaging. It shows your, you are a craftsman in the art of journalism. And that is evident in your work, but what, it, go ahead. Yeah. Well, I, I, I do think that, you know, this is something I very feel very strongly about Matt, that writing you see, we live in the era of the internet in which words and sentences have come to take on a different form. You know, that people no longer understand, I find. I find actually in a lot of even people who read what I write, they're, they're irritated by the length of the articles or the length of the sentences. And I say, you know, but hang on, you know, what? Th this is not a, mem a memorandum. We are not <laughs> working for a corporation. Right. I am not on the 14th floor and you are not on the 7th. We are not sending each other bullet points you know, of, of, of information uh, about the world or about our corporation. We are speaking in multiple layers about the meaning of existence. And, and that's what I try to do in my writing, that it's, it's, it's not just information. It's, not, it's also feeling. It's also, you know, 
memory and irony and all of kind of paradox, all of these things are layered, I would hope. At least this is what I aspire to. And of course, any any writer worth his salt, her salt, that's what they try to do, uh, is to convey in, in almost like a musical way, as much as rhythmically and uh, in terms of uh, uh, euphony and, and uh, uh, harmony and all of these kind of, uh, you know, devices to create something that is a thing in itself, that the yeah. writing becomes not just a description, but a, 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 a sort of a, a representation of what you are talking about. Yes. Uh, so so that's, that's kind of what I think. I think it's, I, I really do think that's something that we have is very little remarked upon in that, that radical change that has happened where everybody just kind of, you know, the way that people just knock things off on a, on a screen and they don't even bother with the punctuation, uh, the, you know, and, and never mind trying to get the syntax right or, you know, try to get the rhythm of a sentence right. Who would do that writing an email, you know? But, it, we're, but the problem, because so much writing is like that now, we're losing that quality of writing, which is the, really the, the important part of it. Well, in your, you know, in your book, you, you alternate between more, you know, somewhat your history and your background as a writer for the, the, the Irish Times. That, that's correct. That's right, Chad. Where you taught, where you wrote for 24 years. But also, uh, there are elements where, where you, you go into a more nostalgic, in the best sense of the term, philosophical perspective. But all of it is an ode to your dad mm. and your your admiration for your father is evident. So, so talk to us a little bit. You were born in 1955. You, you, you mentioned your dad already. And 1955, life was very different in, in, in Ireland. So, so what, was, what was the Waters House like growing up in Ireland in the, the late 50s and in the 60s? Because your dad was also uh, a little bit older than many fathers are when, yes. when, their, when their sons are, are young. So, so talk to us about that. Yeah, I, I accidentally discovered, Matt, that I, I and I, I have 99% certainty of this, not 100%, because I haven't had a first uh, source uh, uh, confirmation, but I have a, a reasonable uh, certainty now that I was conceived on my father's 50th birthday. When I do all the math on this, I think it's mm -hmm. almost certain. And... Uh, I don't know what that makes me. You know, I often ask, you know, was I some kind of uh, consolation or some kind of <laughs> <laughs> celebration? You know, I'm not yes, sure. Yes, yes. <laughs> but uh, uh, so my father was older. So in a certain sense, he might have been like a modern grandfather in a, in a way. You know, you know, that's kind of the way things are now. Their grandfather would be that much older. Uh, and uh, but he was... Quite an extraordinary man. He, he was the kind of man who, he, he had no education in, in the formal sense. I mean, he left school at 11 or something like that, you know. And, and, and But he had, was self-educated and he was very adept at all kinds of physical uh, things like, you know, carpentry or mechanics or things like that. He was really, and he was constantly reading books about mechanics and engineering and those kinds of things. So, and, and he was a very, very great grasp of mathematics as I found when I was in trouble doing algebra or whatever he would be way ahead of me in no time you know he would figure it out much quicker than I mm. would even though I was familiar with it in a certain different way uh, but also he was quite uh, I suppose you would use the word eccentric I would never use this word of him but but 
about him, but he was different, very different. He was a very serious man, but also very funny in his own way and and very much loved by people. You know, I mean, he was this kind, as I say, the stagecoach driver, the, the mail car driver. But so he was carrying mails, letters, posts, and also uh, newspapers and also passengers, even though there were very few, there were no seats usually in the in the van. People would sit on the mailbags. Mm. And sometimes he would have 20 people in the back of the van, of course, quite <laughs> irregular, uh, all talking away, you know, driving on the wow. road between my hometown, Castlereagh, and Balahadrain or Elfen or one of those towns. And he drove very slowly because he was always very busy talking to everybody and turning around. <laughs> and <laughs> so it was that kind of uh, situation. The van was held together by ropes and wires and all kinds of things, you know, and he spent the Sundays. He worked six days a week, but he spent the Sundays repairing it. And of course, as a childhood, I spent a long time lying on the ground alongside him, you know, handing him in wrenches and so on. Uh, but he he was also a very, um, very political man, very passionately interested in Ireland and its history. And, and it's all of the thing, the, the civil from the Civil War, he, he belonged to one side, although he wasn't a member of a political party. Everybody belonged to one side or the other, you know, right. the divide was between, you know, the treaty it was it had to do with the treaty uh, which resolved uh, the situation of ireland but divided the country uh, with the border between northern ireland and the republic and he belonged to the side that that accepted the treaty uh, accepted the division on the basis that it was interim and and he always held that if it hadn't if it had if the civil war had not happened we would have united the country within a few years I don't know mm. if that's true, but he was that kind of man. But he was also very, I, I say, you know, the, in the, the book about him that we lived in conditions that were really almost like nomadic, even though we lived in a house. It was very Im impermanent. Like we didn't have electricity or running water like when I was a child, uh, even though that wasn't the case for everybody around us. You know, it was just the, the house we were in and and. And so on, and so, and he didn't mind that. Now, of course, my mother minded it somewhat, and <laughs> we didn't enjoy it either. But he had that attitude that we. It was in a certain sense, Matt. It strikes me as almost a pure representation of the religious impulse, which is to move to reality. You are moving forever towards the horizon, and 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 you are not resting. You are not because you know that ultimately your purpose is not here. And, and I think that in a certain sense, his life represented that. And of course, we were more earthbound, I suppose, and, and, and we right. resented that a little bit. But as I grew older, I began to look at him much more closely. Of course, as a child, as a teenager, I fought with him relentlessly all the time, you know, and we fell in and out and so on. But then as he grew older, I began to really look at him very closely and realize that this guy was some kind of seer, you know. He, he really understood things at a level that, you don't encounter now. I mean, I remember the the first of January, nineteen seventy three, driving around with him. This was the day that Ireland was went into the European Union, or what was then called the Common Market. Of course, it was they were using the salami tactic to draw us in, draw us, right. in, draw us in. But and he was absolutely opposed to this, and he described in in really graphic terms to people that day. I remember that that this was the greatest disaster that ever had befallen Ireland in all of its history. Hmm. Of course, he, now we know, I know for sure he was right. I thought he was, but that's a bit much, it's over the top. But no, I mean, what is happening in Ireland now is really the culmination of that prophecy. 
And, and he was so right. It is destroyed. Ireland is destroyed now as a consequence of having given up its sovereignty in that way and its independence and its self-sufficiency and its, it, it's, it's, its opportunity to be a country of itself. You know, that it, right. it never even tried. We never even tried to be a, a proper country, to be a nation in the world. Uh, that was the that is the great tragedy of Ireland, I believe. It's not that that uh, we we failed. We didn't fail because this, if you go back over the history, we we got our independence in in hundred years ago now, hundred nineteen twenty one, uh, and uh, you know you could say that we had we our timing was bad. Like if you look back, it happened between two world wars. Like everybody right. was busy with other stuff, right? So there was no such thing as being helped up, getting a leg up. And so for 30, 40 years, we just floundered. And that was taken as almost a definitive statement of our absolute capacity to exist in the world, very misguidedly. And as a result, if you look at what happened then, we basically handed over our, our destiny to different entities. The European Union would be one. The co American corporate sector would be another. You know, the far, or we had this policy of foreign direct investment which is that, you know, we would just basically sit here and let the American corporations come here, generate whatever little trickle of, of uh, uh, you know, revenues that we could pick up in our, in our, 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 our caps. And, and uh, you know, that that would do. It was like I often say is that it was like we had inherited um, a shop from our grandfather uh, with an apartment over upstairs. And we, were, we just said, well, what are we going to sell in the shop? So we would sit in the cafe across the road every day, looking across at the building and thinking, hmm, what could we sell in the shop? And then we had the brilliant idea. Oh, why don't we just rent out this shop and live upstairs? And that's what we did. That's what mm. we've done. And that's the key to our undoing. Uh, now, everybody else did that as well, of course, but I never take that as a reason why we should do it. In sure. fact, that's the reason for not doing it. If everybody else is doing it, you know, then maybe you shouldn't be doing it. Well, there was so much that Ireland had largely escaped throughout history, including even the Roman Imperium. Uh, Rome was limited as far as how they how far they could go. So, so the people of you know the clans of Ireland at that time had more freedom than than someone say in in Gaul or you know th th those areas, but. But now, it's, it's well, go ahead. Yeah, to some extent that is true. Of course, there were we did miss out on on certain things in a good way. But but nevertheless, our history was. I mean, we were occupied, particularly in the last, you know, in in the the, the penal times. Right, right. Uh, Ireland was, you know, in a certain sense, free. I mean, we had many invasions, and but and these invasions were kind of incorporated, you know. Uh, the Norse, the the, the Normans, the, the Vikings, and so on. Uh, but the the period of the you know the penal laws um, when really Ireland became really a slave nation, right. You know, and, and, right, and which culminated in what are called the famines of the eighteen forties, which is a word that I, it can be misleading. Let us say, right, because really these were genocides. You know, this was an, a genocide of the Irish people. I mean, we lost two million people died and two million people left Ireland in that period. Our population went from eight million to four million in a matter of three, five years or so. And and really, 
So we were abominably treated. And I think that, uh, uh, you know, it's a, it's a shocking thing to see now what is happening in our country because that experience where we were driven out of our country is being used, our, our ancestors or, you know, our neighbours were sent out of the country, had to go, and many of them died on the way. Many, many horrific stories. And I've, I've done documentaries about this and, and, and so on, and articles and, and so on. But we, we are now being told by our leaders that we went all over the world, therefore we have to open our door and let the world in now into Ireland. Even though Ireland is a tiny country and, 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 and is, is its resources is, is only for the first time, if that, getting its feet. Now, it's not getting its feet in a good way because, you know, the, the, the Irish economy now, I mean, it's absolutely ludicrous. They tell us Ireland is now the wealthiest country in the world. Yes, on paper. But that paper reflects not the well-being of Ireland. It reflects the well-being of the corporate sector. Um you know, and, and when you then look at the consequences of that for Ireland, I mean, we invited in the pharmaceutical industry back in the 1970s. And really then it was part of the, the deal. They were on their way. They were fleeing America because they were trying to escape from anti-pollution laws. And we basically said to them, look, this place is untouched. You can do what you like. Nobody's going to bother you for years and years. And now these people are, are preaching to us ecology and, and ESG and, and, and uh, things and saying it's our fault that uh, the, wor the world is allegedly, allegedly uh, suffering a climate crisis. <laughs> uh, so, so, you know, all of, this, e e all of these things are, are, are universal now in, in the West particularly because the West is clearly at war with itself, or rather its leadership is at war with its people. That is what's happening. And, and these conditions are, if anything, more acute in Ireland than almost anywhere else. I don't say necessarily everywhere else, because there are some really bad flashpoints, you know, in, in, in Canada and, and, and in Australia and places like that. But in Ireland, you know, we have one of the most vicious governments in the world, the nastiest people, and these are our own people. This is, it's, and again, it goes back to that thing that it's impossible to describe it. Uh, you know, I, I've spent 40 months now trying to coin sentences to describe what is happening and my feeling about it and how it relates to what we might describe as a truth, if we can, find, if we can any longer articulate that. And, and uh, I, I fail most of the time, I admit. You know, I, I, I think, you know, I try different things from different directions. Sometimes what you might call a spiritual perspective, sometimes a philosophical perspective, sometimes even a postmodern perspective. You know, to try and find a, a, a way that people will begin to obtain a resonance that is harmon that harmonizes with their experience. You know, that's the most important thing for me as a writer is that people say, oh, I feel, I can feel now that there is a, a, a correspondence between these words and how I feel about the reality. Mm. And, and th that's been the hardest thing because we look at these people who are, were our neighbours, uh, we elected them to lead us, to, to lead our government, to, to do our work for us, to look after our interests. And they have turned upon us like dogs. Really, it's quite shocking. And of course, it's happening to other people. We see it in America and the United States as well. Right. We see it in, in, in the United Kingdom. We see it in France. Uh, you know, of course, and then 
God help us, we see Ukraine. Uh, it's all seeming to stem from the same font. Right. Font, and, and really, I, I, I'm not sure any longer. You know, it seems to me that we live in a time when it's, it's, it's really a post-God world, isn't it, really, in the sense that culturally we, we no longer have the capacity to believe in the idea of creation or in the idea of a supreme being. Right. And therefore, there is a sense like that there are no consequences to anything, that anything is possible and everything is permissible. And, that you know, the only fault that you can have is being by being weak, by refusing orders, by by by, because everything it seems is top down. Everything is the 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 the, uh, the hidden puppet masters dictating what should happen in countries they have never set foot upon. These these things really they they keep me awake at night, Matt. I I and uh, you know so let's let's maybe talk a little bit more about them. So, well. One of the ironic elements to this, to what what you're saying, is that in the past, Ireland was known as the the Isle of Saints and Scholars. There were many blessings. Of course, Thomas Cahill's book, How the Irish Saved Civilization, Wonderful book. That was not the book that I put down, by the way, when I was when I was reading your book. I, I, you don't I have to tell us what that book was, Matt. I'm sorry. We're not going to let you leave until you tell us. <laughs> uh, but so what are some of the blessings, though, that Ireland in, in the past, at least when when, when she was a, a stronger place? I know she was not dominant in the world in the way that say Britain was dominant or France or now, you know, America. And I'm not even saying that being dominant is a good thing, but I know there are blessings though, that the, that the, the Irish gave, what are some of those good things in the past that she has bequeathed to the West? I, I, I think that the, the most beautiful thing about Ireland, apart from the scenery, which is a different category. I mean, it's, it's an extraordinarily beautiful country, but it, that beauty is equaled, I think, by the beauty of the personality of Ireland that you encounter and uh, in the person, or you used to encounter. It's dying now, you see, this because the, all these processes are are are, are crushing it. Uh, so uh, that to me is the abiding memory I, I have of growing up, the gentleness of people. I don't, I don't say it was universal; terrible things happened, and, and you know, sure. there was a war in the north of our country, and so on. But my direct experience as a, a child growing up was that it was a safe place, that there was always a, and that there was a strong sense of justice uh, always in Ireland, you know, and that there was always a place or a person you could go to, and if you were in trouble, and if if somebody was putting that upon you or something, and and that you would get help, and you would be believed or you would be listened to, and and uh, so there's that, and I think that. The culture of Ireland was was so rich. You know, the music of Ireland went around the world, and and still is very much honoured in in America, in in, in Europe, in Germany, and Sweden, places, all kinds of places, and and much more so actually than it is at home, because we have undergone these kind of uh, this series of uh, cultural ambushes in, through the last few decades, in which we have our nation, our nationhood, has been attacked all the time, our sense of 
proprietorship of our nation, of our country is being attacked. We're now being told, no, 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 you just arrived here the day before yesterday. You know, you have no claim uh, on this land, uh, even though we've been here for hundreds, if not thousands of years and and uh, and so on. So uh, and also the literary t- tradition, you know, which I think was particularly important uh, because it was almost a, uh, the Irish Revolution, uh, <clears throat> the rising of 1916. That was the, the revolutionary moment. And that was the coincided with the publication of Ulysses and, and, and uh, that period. And subsequently, writers like Beckett, and who were, you know, people often think of Beckett as a kind of an absurdist writer or, a, you know, a <clears throat> nihilistic writer. But he wasn't at all that. He, he, he was, if you actually look at Beckett's plays and as an Irish person, the characters in them are actually real people. I mean, I used to meet these guys mm-hmm. on the road and in my street when I was a child, you know. <clears throat> so there's a, there's a great deal of realism about them. But there's also, I think, a sort of spiritual uh, yearning, which is hard to kind of to to explain to people uh, uh, because they're so certain of Beckett as being you know some kind of um, atheistic nihilist. But he he wasn't really. <clears throat> I see him more as somebody who was challenging reality to reveal its positive dimensions, its hope, its 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 uh, its promise for the future. Uh, and in that sense, he was, you know, a quite vigor- invigorating writer. I found him extraordinarily funny because out of that, that impulse came the humor of much of his writing, you know, uh, right. almost a sense of all the time, <clears throat> that hope being, being uh, betrayed or lost or, or defeated. But yet he got up again and, and, and went on. I mean, you know, that famous line, I can't go on. I must go on. I'll go on. Mm. And, 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 you know, that, that's almost like those three lines. Are the, 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 that's, that's Ireland's history. Yes. I can't go on. I must go on. I'll go on. And, and, and those words, are, they resonate now, too. In, I think this is something that sounds implausible because we live in a supposedly modern constitution republic democracy, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but, you know, this is, this is we, we are now in the greatest trouble I think we've ever been in as a nation. We're, this is terminal. This will be terminal unless we can find a way to reverse it, to prevent it. And because it's a universal attack, we therefore need to make connections with people in the wider world. Uh, because we, we no longer, our people are defeated themselves and existentially by this processes that I've been talking about, which have been bombarding them for decades, really, now we see. But especially in the last decade, the last 12 or so years. very I, I believe that there was really what the Spanish call an autocope, uh, a self-coup here in, in Ireland in 2011, where in effect uh, external forces moved in here uh, and took control of not just our economy and our future in that sense, but also the culture. So all things that started, strange things started to erupt in Ireland. You know, like there are things that have, one thing you could always rely on Irish government, Irish politicians for was their incompetence. (laughs) 
uh, and and now that there's no sign of that incompetence now, really, in this because what you can see, you can see a hidden hand at work in everything that happens. Everything is orchestrated. Everything is rehearsed. Everything is scripted. Everything happens according to a protocol. And uh, you know we have all these kind of psychological operations that happen all the time. Whenever uh, something happens that might be conceivably inconvenient to the regime, within hours. It is as if some for- hidden force has moved in to deal with the situation and deal with it in the most cunning way and the way most manipulative way so as to deflect the energies of the people away from criticism of the government onto some kind of conflict. For example, there was a, wo- a woman, young woman murdered uh, in Ireland at the beginning of, 20, of 2022. And... The, the, the suspect was an, a migrant. We didn't know this at the time. But immediately, uh, almost overnight, well, literally overnight, tens of thousands of young women were marshaled onto the streets with candles and pictures, framed pictures of this young woman attacking Irish men for their misogyny and calling on Irish men to square up to their responsibility and to stop, you know, mistreating women it was known all the time that the the person who had done this was a migrant but they didn't want the focus of the reaction to be that and so they created this psychological operation and that's happened countless times in in our in the last few few years in ireland so you're dealing with an occupation you know i i could say who who i believe it is i'm sorry to say i believe that it is has an american very significant american element sure i'm sure Uh, you're right uh undoubtedly because one of the people who came here in 2011 was uh, obama and that was a very interesting moment you know where he uh, spoke in college green in dublin and and the teacher the prime minister at the time welcomed him and more or less insinuated that this was the future of Ireland, whatever he meant by that, uh, that this this would be the future of Ireland, and and uh, uh, and so it has proved, and and uh, so now Ireland doesn't belong to the Irish; it belongs to the world, it belongs to the globe. It is a globalized country. Uh, it is what the great Irish patriot Thomas Davis talked about when he said that he said this Ireland of ours is no sandbank and by that he meant it's not just a piece of territory that we walk across it's a beloved ancient place and so on well now it is a sandbank I'm reminded in what you are the things you're saying of C.S. Lewis's book that hideous strength yeah there is so much here including the manufactured riots that he, you know, he was talking about this in 1945, 43, whenever that book was published. And, I mean, and it is, it has manifested itself. But one of, one of the positive things that I remember when the, the beings, the Eldils, the, 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 the angelic forces that then, the, the good ones come to earth, they say that those evil, those who were evil, opened up the door. In other words, they started this. So they're going to receive, I mean, they, they opened the door, so now we get to come and 
help take care of the job. Hmm. My, you know, one thing that I've thought before as nations, as nations have fallen to international bureaucracy, to this perspective, this this overarching liberalization and secularism. That also, though, as you hinted at earlier, it opens the door for those who are faithful, for the people of God to also lock arms internationally as well. Yes, you know, I agree. So it's similar to the way that those in, you know, as the Church of England sent many over to Africa now, there are some of the most faithful Anglican missionaries, some of the most faithful Anglicans in Africa are now sending missionaries to Britain to re-evangelize. Yes. And and so, so they're helping the mother remember what she's given up. It's kind of like if the prophet Hosea, when, when, when he, he married a woman who was a, a harlot and then she, she left, it would be like her children coming back and saying, no, mom, this is the right way. Well, I, I see the same thing happening in relation to Ireland and so on as well. But I, I, I cannot say how that will work if it will work. Sure. Because I think the nature of this war that we're in, it being a spiritual war, it's out of our control. And, and that, that place, that presents us with a challenge that is very puzzling because it is not clear in any moment what our duty is. It is not clear at any moment what we can do, what the solution is. We can't possibly come up with a solution. Right. Uh, we cannot basically make a plan for how we fight this war. In a certain sense, we have to become, all we can do is to be available to the forces of good, the forces of God, that we will be there when we are called upon and that whatever is necessary, we will do. And that's what we, that's the kind of principle I apply because I really don't know how to deal with this. Sure. I really don't know how you could possibly even envisage reversing this assault. But yet I have a faith that it is possible because why? Because it isn't up to me. Right. As Chesterton said, we serve the God who knows the way out of the grave. Yes. In the everlasting that's right. man. That's exactly it. That's exactly it, Matt. And and that's in a, in a strange kind of way. It's it's a it's a very hopeful thought. Yeah. Very it's very cheering thought actually. That oh, I don't need to solve this. Yes. Yes. Because I can't. That's good. I mean, but that is good news. It takes a lot of pressure off of us. Yes. To have to figure this out. So, so you you, you mentioned the role of the church. Uh, some. So, what was, you know, what was the role of the church in Ireland before the the secularism began creeping and making its way through? I mean, what? Because again, as Americans, we don't. All we hear from most modern history teachers is the church was just an oppressive place and, you know, people had to only get their back alley abortions because it was illegal. You know, all all, all the same claptrap that we hear. 
but there yeah, was a but, sense of beauty there though that that well, we there, miss there, yes um it's a multifaceted question um and and you can talk about it in sociological terms and you can also talk about it in personal terms and 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 if I talk about it in personal terms, what I can say is that that my experience of the church was overwhelmingly benign in my childhood. Overwhelmingly, you know, I mean, uh, it was a safe place to go. I mean, the church, the actual physical building, was the only place in town that I could walk in the door of any time of day, any time of day, and spend time there on my own. It was open to me. And I remember that very strongly, that sense of, of being welcome there and being entitled to be there, being free there. And, and that gave me a certain sensibility about the world and about my place in it and my sense of freedom as being in a strange, strange way paradoxical that it depended, my sense of freedom depended not on, it wasn't a question of just letting rip. It was a question of, adhering to something to belong to something now that that journey has was checkered in my life you know and i've, I've written a lot about it i wrote a book called lapsed agnostic because I, I strayed off for a number of years and then came back and in a certain sense now i have to say i'm kind of straying off again but that's a more complex question because it has to do with the pre the last four years and i really believe that the church in ireland did not service people well in that period but that's a different question the question you're asking, though, I think you see all of that stuff about, you know, of course there was, you know, there were things that happened in the church and under the church's watch in the 50s, 60s, 70s that were, you know, bad. But they were very much part of more than the church. They were part of the state. They were part of a, a kind of a combination, like they were in the education system. They were in dealing with social problems. They were, uh, you know, the, the 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 church and state operating together, and of course that's always a mistake. It's always a bad thing when that happens because uh, the church becomes bureaucratic and 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 loses its mission, and and that certainly happened. Uh, there is a, a, a telling on all this that talks about infiltration of the church on a on a global basis, which I I, I do not disbelieve. I think it, there's a lot in it. And you can see the traces of that also in, in the child abuse uh, stories and so on. But what, what is left out of that picture all the time is the fact that while all this was happening, there were hundreds of thousands of priests and nuns doing extraordinary work in nursing, in education, in preaching the Gospels. And in, in really, I think, creating the personality of Ireland or f nurturing the personality of Ireland in, in that way that I speak of it, uh, because there is an extraordinary gentleness, I think, in principle in the Irish personality, uh, a sense of an empathy that is, you know, it's only when you when you start to miss it in places now, uh, as I do, you know, where you, you encounter in a public place rudeness, where once you have, you would have a, a conversation, you know what I mean? You would have an, an encounter. Uh, uh, the beginning of a relationship even uh, because the person would become so interested in your problem and in and, and almost feeling feeling a, a necessity to prove themselves 
by solving it and being disappointed more so than you if they fail to solve your problem. You know, it's, it's, it's in small and, and kind of quite ludicrous ways you can see this, you know, where if, you, if, if, if somebody comes to Ireland and, and stops an Irish person and asks for directions, you know, the Irish person, if being unable to help them, is far more disappointed than the person who asks. And that's, that's, that's really true. You know, it's really, really true. You know, there's something about our desire. You people, I mean, in psychobabble is called people-pleasing, but it's, it's much deeper than that. It's, it's really a need to actually establish relations, relationships. And, and that's dying now. But all of that has to do with Christianity. Not entirely. I shouldn't say that, actually, because Christianity, you know, the, and I recently talked, did a talk about this in, in public, you know, Christianity comes on top of a history of paganism and Christian uh, Celtic Christianity. So there's a continuum there. So there's many facets in it. And Ireland, Ireland's history, like, is really interesting because if you go back 3,000 years, we had a system of laws in Ireland called the Brehan Laws, which are, you know, as advanced as anything that exists now in terms, far more so in, ter in the terms of their respect for freedom and autonomy and so on. Right. Uh, so many people don't know this. You know, they, they in Ireland, they don't know this. They don't know about these things. And they think that, you know, they believe the mythology, which is the, the mythology of colonization, which is, as Franz Fanon described it, you know, before the advent of colonialism, there was nothing but savagery. Well, that certainly wasn't true of Ireland, if indeed it was, was true of anywhere. Uh, but uh, so the church was, I think, a central part of that. But it seems to me that there's two things I would criticize the church for. And I've mentioned one of them, which is the very recent one. But before that, I think that the great mistake the church made way back was in oversimplifying and moralizing the Christian message. Mm. That morality was put uppermost. And it was taught as though as if that's all it was, and that we're now suffering the backlash against that. But of course, you know, Christianity is not built like that at all. Right. Christianity does not start, it starts with Christ, with this right. extraordinary, extraordinary person, it's extraordinary personality, and, and, and it's extraordinary insights into to, to human reality and existence. And, and only at the end of that relationship, when that relationship is made, only then do you, in a certain sense, come to the shorthand of morality. Right. Purely by way of remembering the, the headline points. Uh, and, and so it seems to me that, you see, one of the great terrible things is, Matt, that we, we uh, were not permitted a discussion about any of this while it was happening. Right. If you made any attempt to intervene in these discussions, and I did, and numerous, I got into terrible trouble, but by talking about the need of humanity for a transcendent idea, that idea of moving through reality, that we're going somewhere, we're going somewhere, we're going somewhere. and But of course, immediately you are put down as simply trying to defend the indefensible, whatever that might be in the particular instance. And uh, most people just shut up then I mean those who were, who were foolish didn't for a long time I mean but I have to say even within that context I was appalled by the behavior of the church in in in, in closing its doors in in the spring of 2020 in abandoning its people 
uh, you know, and then afterwards this, this obsession with face masks and, you know, wash, hand washing on the altar, that there was no holy water in the font, but there was, you know. Really? Yeah. Yeah, that kind of thing. I mean, it, 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 it was really terrible. And I think, again, that goes back to the point I made, you know, that what happens to very often in, in, in the church has happened in Ireland. I won't generalize because I've met some great clerics. I've get, met some great bishops and, and cardinals, and there are some wonderful people in, uh, in, in those positions. But it, it, very often what you get rising to the top of an edifice like in Ireland, a country like Ireland, is, is the most bureaucratic-minded uh, clerics who become almost indistinguishable from the politicians that they deal with. And they see themselves as, as carrying out a certain role in society that is somehow a complementary one to that of the politician. And I think that has been very, very, very damaging for Christianity and the church in general, because, you know, really people don't understand. Most Irish people now seem to think that uh, Christianity is just simply a series of rules Mm. made by old men with, you know, long dresses. And and, uh, they don't want it. And, but they don't realize that actually that is actually destroying the hopes of their own children because you have removed transcendent imagination right. from the culture. And that's fatal to any culture. If there is no metaphysics, then no. morality, ethics don't matter. Yes. Well, you know, I was reading recently a book by Philip, American sociologist, uh, Philip Reif. Oh, yes. Yes. Uh, um, and it's called, I have it here actually somewhere, but it, it's called, uh, uh, let me just see. Uh, it's not there now. Is it My Life and the Death Works? It, yes. My, my Wife, My Life Among the Death Works. That's exactly it. And, and really... We, you know, it's quite extraordinary. That book was published, I think, in 2006, which was the year he died, if I'm not mistaken, which is like just less than 20 years ago. And that book is prof- highly prophetic yes. of what's happened to Ireland now. Because he talks about the three. We touched on it already, Matt. You know, the three, the, meta- the mythological, the first world, what he calls the first world, the mythological world, which is the pagan world, the the the, the Greek, ancient Greek, Grecian world, the American Indian world, so where you have a belief in gods, a transcendent imagination that works at that level, that works on the basis of fate, F-A-T-E, and taboos. And then in the second world, you have the the Abrahamic religions, as he describes it, in which you have ruled by commandments and and faith and commandments, F-A-I-T-H. But then, and, and again, a transcendent idea which is the driving force of all these but then he says when you let that go there is a, a kind of inversion that happens and in the third world you get essentially a licentious uh, nihilistic empty culture uh, of you know pornography and, and uh, uh, lechery and, and and all kinds of lewdness and and so on. I can't remember exact words, but that's the general picture. And that's exactly what's happened to Ireland, where, you know, overnight, like we spend, you, you know, we've just talked. I mean, just think about it in this, of our, what we've just spoken about in relation to the church's problems back in, say, the 90s in relation to clerical sex abuse. This, this society has worn itself out 
talking about this, the horror of it, the awfulness of it. Now, a few years later, the government is trying to impose pornography, gay pornography, on young children in schools over the heads of their parents. Right. It is pushing drag queens into libraries. Drag queens, which are basically ugly men dressed as prostitutes, female prostitutes, who have to read stories and and wave their buttocks or whatever at little children. And nobody's standing up and saying, what? What's going on? Right. Apart from a handful of people who are regarded as, you know, the far right. Right. In other words, that what was it all about? What exactly were we condemning for all those years when we attacked pederast priest or whatever we call them? What was that about? If now that we've finished that stage of the operation, we're going to now engage in the antithesis, right. which is the celebration of handing our children over for grooming to these people. And that's the government doing this. We have been, well, the American phrase is, we have been played. We have been, you know, lied to purposefully. And and the, the, the scary thing about the death works, as, as, as I understand Reef to say, they're not just things that are contrary to the first two worlds, but they actually hollow out the best yes. of those worlds. It, it, it's not like they, they, they're not creating a competing edifice to say um, Chartres Cathedral. It's not like they're building this ugly building next to Chartres saying, this is in comparison. No, first, they tear down and they destroy the beautiful. Yes. And then they build up something that is antithetical and, and even anti-Christ against it. That, 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 that is against all that is good, that is true, that's, that's holy, that's pure. And kind of like Aaron in... Uh, after they came out of ex, you know, after they came out of Egypt, the the this is the God that brought you out of out of Egypt. Except, I mean, it's even worse than than that. But yes, it's it's, it's taking the best and it's it's destroying it. It's hollowing it out. It's taking the form of it though. Kind of like when, uh, you know, let's see when I believe it was Antiochus Epiphanes brought in and started slaughtering pigs in the Jewish temple. I mean, mm-hmm. it, it, it's purposefully making a mockery of what is good. Yes. Well, this is, a, it's, it's, it's really, I call it a moral inversion, that this, almost like overnight, this occurred in Ireland. I, you know, again, around the time, certainly between 2011 and 2014, in that period, between 2012, 2013, it is like everything was turned upside down and that good became bad, bad became good, wholesome became unwholesome. It was like that we had to reverse everything. 
it, it's like that syndrome you're talking about, the ugly building versus the, the, the old one being replaced by the ugly one, which is like, it's almost as if when you look, I often say to my wife, you know, when we see, she asked me, why did somebody build that building next to that beautiful old one there? And I say, well, it's, it's, it's exactly, it's not, not an accident. It's not laziness. It's a reaction. It's like an antithesis. That, you know, because they, they, they have, of course, everything is in now in binary form, particularly in the digital world. So we, we seem to have the capacity, and indeed, this may be a human trait. We see things in terms of beauty and ugliness. And there is nothing in between as well. So because the world is rejecting Christ, it is rejecting beauty. And therefore, there is nothing left except ugliness. And that this is the, the explanation for everything. In the, the elevation of certain people who have acquired an, an ugliness by virtue of their their actions and their words, uh, and but the strange thing is they are now the virtuous ones, but in the culture, they can condemn the people who try to speak the truth. You know, this is Matt. I I, I struggle. This is where I begin to run out of of of, of a capacity to to speak about this because it defies anything that I was trained to use as a means of comprehension of reality. Because always we, we had in growing up, there's a sense of we all implicitly, we, we strive for excellence. We strive to make things better. We get up in the morning to work, to do good things. We don't get up to destroy the happiness of other people. What our politicians do, that's all they do now. They destroy the happiness of their own people, deliberately, you know, maliciously. Um, they, 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 they extol out, downright, you know, low lives, frankly, uh, as examples to, to the young. The young, because they, they have been indoctrinated with the idea of progress and with the idea that we must move forward, I mean, all the time we must be moving forward and moving forward has certain characteristics which are immutable. They're set in stone from in history, from the beginning, whatever that beginning was, you wouldn't wonder. Uh, but now we, 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 what has happened though is that all the voices of wisdom have been stilled in our culture. They're no longer to be heard because either they're afraid to speak or they're cancelled, they're banished from the public sphere. So, like I, in my debate, I, from all my working life, from about uh, as a journalist, from the uh, certainly from the late eighties through to twenty thirteen, I was a central figure in this debates in Ireland, and then I just disappeared because it wasn't possible any longer. Because I, my only purpose for them was to 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 to. Um, burlesque me and, and to abuse me and to prove me wrong by ridicule or by, you know, abuse, not by reason, because they couldn't. They don't want you to be able to speak. They don't want to give you space to speak. They do all kinds of tricks. So I just, in the end, uh, uh, voluntarily walked away from it because I couldn't any longer bear it. Uh, but And I don't believe it has any use in a culture like this. I don't believe you can combat such a culture from within. Um, so I, I now, 
I, I really don't know how you, again, how do you describe it? What do you say when you actually take a particular politician? You know, you could think of an American, pop, I think of an Irish one. I think of the Deputy Prime Minister, Michal Martin, say. He's a, he was the Prime Minister of Taoiseach for three years there recently. And I say, well, as far as I knew, he was a decent enough individual. He was straight. He was idealistic. He had values. He had morals. Now he's presiding over complete immorality. He is destroying the country that he was born in, the country of his family, the country of his children, of his neighbours. It seems not to, bother, to matter to him. And so you kind of have to ask, you know, what is, what is going on? You said that we, we, Ireland was this, the, the Isle of Saints and Scholars. Well, now it is the, the island of nonsery and nonsense. You know, and, and I'm sorry, that's, that's, that's the best I can do. That's the best I can do by way of description. And, and the trouble is, you know, Matt, that, that that will anger certain people. But they won't deny it because they're quite proud of it in a certain other sense. You know, they don't like me saying it. But they're quite, they think, because ultimately it is a vengeance by them, born of their neurosis on a past that they never tried to understand. Hmm. So in, you know, as we bring this in kind of in, in, in closing, you mention a lot of people in your book, in addition to your dad, that have, that, that their work has influenced you. One of the places that, that I really appreciated, you, you said at one point that your dad uh, well, that Matt, Matthew Crawford, the professor at, uh, at least he used to be at Virginia. I don't know if he still teaches there or not, but that he, that Matt Crawford reminded you of your dad, except just with a philosophy degree. Yeah. Yeah. So, so he's one and, and, and he certainly speaks the truth and it's not popular. Who are a few other people that, you know, while, while, while some people who are, very public may not speak the truth. There are still there are people that that you've relied on in the past to guide you in wisdom, whether they're living or dead. Who who are some of the who are some of those others? Well, uh, uh, I always admired for a long time. I have admired Robert Bly. He died there a couple of years ago. Uh, he he was an American poet and and. Uh, he wrote a lot about men, about fatherhood, mm -hmm. and it was a great influence on me and a great support to me when I became a father in difficult circumstances. Um, I, I, I think he was a very, very important figure. Um, in the contemporary uh, landscape, even though I don't agree with everything he says, and even though I, I kind of think he's evasive about certain subjects, I, I would name Jordan Peterson. Right. Um, because... You know, I think he is extraordinarily erudite and, and, and articulate about certain things and, and, and really extraordinary communicator. And I think that young men in particular need what he gives because it's very nourishing kind of, you know, much of it. Not all of it necessarily. I don't, as I say, I don't necessarily. But then again, I shouldn't even say that because I don't like people say to me, you know, I don't agree with everything you say, you know. Hmm, right. Yeah. Like, who does? That's a given, like, yes. Yeah, like, I mean, you could actually pick any random person in the street and go up to them and say, I don't agree with everything you think. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, but, and if you couldn't say that, there'd be a problem. 
right? You know, you know, it's the old saying, what is it, you know, if everybody's thinking the same, the chances are that nobody's thinking at all. Right. So, so, so he, those I, I, I mentioned in that respect, I like David, Victor Davis Hanson very much, I must say. Like, although again, it's a very strange thing, Matt, but I thought that intellect, intellectuals in America, for some reason, seem to be slower to get the COVID thing than the, than the Europeans. I'm not sure why that is. Uh, uh, like Victor, I think you know, he gets it now, but in the beginning he was somewhat hesitant, right? And 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 didn't really catch up for quite some months, you know. Um, I don't know why that is, but it was true of others as well. I like I like um, uh, uh, Doctor Steve Hurley, uh, Tardy, uh, Steve Tardy, very much. He he does very short, very opposite uh, yes. commentaries. Uh, but are very sometimes quite profound. Sometimes he goes to the depths of things, you know. Uh, so uh, I'm not sure. I, you know, uh, you put me on the spot there, but sure, I, that, I, that, 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 that's a good start. Yeah, certainly Matthew Crawford. I I really admire. You know, his his sense of you know the connection between the physical world and the mental world, as expressed in in working with the hands. Because I think that was really the thing about my father, that his capacity. You know, it's really, you know, I often say to people like, you know, if you look at a, a little child, of a, you know, six months old, crawling on the carpet, picking things up, feeling them, dropping them, throwing them, tasting them, sniffing them, you know, and that, that's the way the child understands the whole world. Right. That's the beginning of a process of understanding the whole world. And, and. You know, we continue that. The problem is in the modern world that at some point that's interrupted by second-hand learning, which is necessary in itself. But if you stop engaging physically with the world, then something happens to you, that to, to your senses and the connection between your senses and your mind, which is very profound. And, and I think that that's something that Matthew Crawford understands so completely and yes. beautifully. And his books, you know, are so... Uh, wonderful in that respect, you know, is a uh, shop class as uh, Soulcraft is a really wonderful book, you know, uh, and the world outside my head is a more complex and deeper book, but more comp more I suppose um, challenging book, I guess, because right. uh, it's more philosophical and and so on, but very rewarding. I think he's wonderful, and and uh, uh, I, I I'm I'm the, but that that's that's kind of the ones that jump out at me right now. Uh, sure. I also like novelists. I mean, there's a, there's a great, um, um, I think the best novelist operation in the world now is strangely, he's not a wonderful writer, but he's an extraordinary imagination. It's Michel Houellebecq. He's a French yeah. Frenchman. And uh, he writes about the collapse of the human, of human culture in a very terrifying and very real way. Yes. He, he does not make it pleasant for those no. who are squeamish or on the fundamentalist side of things. That's right. That's right. He, he is something of an nihilist, I think. But again, I'd, I'd, I'd enter the caveat that with those guys, I often think, you know, again, they think the same about Nietzsche as with Samuel Beckett and with Huelbeck, that there's a kind of a, a plea at the heart of what they're saying is, please prove me wrong. Right, right. I want to be wrong. I want to be wrong. I don't want to be right. Nietzsche never wanted God to be dead. Really, I don't right. believe that, that. That that is that does come out more in in some of his writings than others. Yes, 
And yes. I would actually say in reading you, the, the, the person that I've thought of, because I've read your Substack for, for a while and, you know, and, and this book and, and, your, and I've read you on First Things, there's a lot in your work and your perspective that reminds me of Kierkegaard, Soren Kierkegaard, very yeah. much. That there is, it, it is a, a plea for people to disengage from all of the nonsense that society is offering up, the, the shallow, vapid, empty mush, and to, to actually embrace the faith and all of its wonder. Yes, I think that's right. But again, you know, there uh, the language is so tricky because I'm aware when you try to describe these things, it's almost like they're, it's all landmined. That there are certain words, you know, the word faith is landmined, you know, it's it's because people don't generally do not approach these questions with an open mind. So you have to find, you have to kind of do a little bit of limbo dancing if you want to stay in the discussion with with the general population at the moment. I don't say mm-hmm. that's a definitive or, or, or final situation terminal situation. I think that that will change. I really believe that, see, the, the fundamental problem is that in the world about in this, in that context is that we believe that we have evolved past the point where God is credible. But in reality, what's happened is that we have constructed a false culture within which it has become possible to believe that. But that culture, as Pope Benedict said, is the bunker the culture of the bunker, it has closed out virtually everything. It has closed out the mystery of existence. And that's the trick that mankind has played. When you take down those walls of that bunker and look at the open space around you and look to the horizon in every direction, you realize you don't know anything. And that therefore you have to begin again formulating words. And that brings you back to the idea that, you know, the strangest thing in that situation as you stand here, the, the strangest thing imaginable is that you are standing here. Right. And when you think about it like that, anything else is possible. The idea that nothing else is possible is such an absurdity. In other words, the kind of nihilistic kind of, you know, atheistic, this is the, all there is, extinction, extinction, extinction. It's so absurd when you think of your own existence in this moment how did how did this happen? How does it happen? What what am I? How can I possibly not believe in something greater if I believe I am here now? This is, I think, the, the core of, of you know, because what's actually happening when people, when you actually hear people decrying religion or dismissing religion. What they're dismissing is a caricature of religion. They're, they're dismissing right. something which they never really got to understand or even attempted to understand. Uh, they see that kind of moralistic forbidding God and they just don't want any part of it. Uh, it's a big, big mistake because the, ultimately the only, the sole sufferer is the person themselves because they lose that capacity to walk lightly through reality with the head held high, moving towards the horizon, full of hope, full of expectation. 
and noticing that the horizon moves ahead all the time, but nevertheless progressing, progressing, we're moving forward. I think that's, this to me is what faith is. This is what religion is. This is what spirituality is. Uh, it, you know, and it, you know, but it's a terrible thing. But at this precise moment, I think that I feel that we almost have to put it in that kind of language exclusively for people to actually to somehow penetrate to people that maybe they're just seen in the wrong way. And then, of course, when you get when you get them to understand, then they can go back right into everything. Right. And open, with an open heart and an open mind. And, and I think that's possible because there is no, I do not believe that this, it is that the, the, it's simply a, 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 a factor of chronological time that atheism seems to be a rational position. I don't believe that that's something that we should accept. But at the moment, that's what you would think listening, certainly in Ireland, listening to most young people talking listening to if you did listen to the radio and tv that's what you would gather if you talk to artists now who are supposed to be the fonts of spirituality they, they don't believe right. in anything it seems um this is this needs to be addressed in in a conversation not by me proselytizing or preaching but simply by let's compare notes let's compare words and sure. see where we go well john this has been really good I, I i appreciate your you taking time to to talk there's so many things so many things that we could have talked about in addition to this because i know you you are sure. a student of rock and roll music and you have some uh, very interesting ideas on that that i've i've learned a lot just by listening to some of what you've <clears throat> said and written about that and in addition to other things so this is this is really good again your your book is give us back the bad roads, and you have several other books that you've you mentioned already. Uh, and the lapsed agnostic book is one that I've I've appreciated, and then also uh, beyond consolation, how we became too clever for God. Those are two really good. So, so thank you for taking time to join us today. The Good Life Podcast is a ministry of Trinity Reformed Church in Huntsville, Alabama. If you like this podcast, you might enjoy one of our other podcasts, Got a Minute, featuring Larson Hicks and Rich Lusk. Theology, philosophy, economics, politics, and more for normal people.